Welcome to the Roots of the Spirit podcast. I'm your host, Spirit Tafik. I'm a social justice passionista and daughter of the civil rights movement. This podcast is my commitment to serve as an intergenerational bridge and galvanize change by having honest conversations about identity, the social construct of race, racism, and social justice. Welcome to Roots of the Spirit. Hello, Roots of the Spirit community. I hope everyone is doing fantastic. As a reminder, you can find my podcast on Apple Podcasts and SoundCloud, as well as on my website, which is www.rootsofthespirit.com. Also, if you have any questions for me or anything that was discussed on the podcast, feel free to email me at spirit at rootsofthespirit.com. Also, please take a moment to rate, review, and share the podcast. Speaking of listener comments, I'd like to answer a question that came in via my Instagram box from Tia. Tia asked, Spirit, I went on your website and found that Roots of the Spirit actually started out as an online show. Do you still do videos? If not, what made you decide to turn it into a podcast instead? The answer to that question is yes, Roots of the Spirit did start out on a video platform. I have approximately six Roots of the Spirit interviews on my YouTube channel, which can be found on my website, again, rootsofthespirit.com. I am a filmmaker at heart. I love the power of imagery, hence why I went to school for mass communications and launched Roots of the Spirit years later on a video platform. Although that platform is my ultimate dream again one day, I am completely obsessed with podcasts at this moment in my life. I literally have so many different podcasts downloaded. I keep up with so many different podcasters ranging from self-help, entrepreneurship, social justice, politics, news, etc., etc. Thank you so much, Tia, for the question. And for all Roots of the Spirit listeners, please send me questions. I love to engage with you. And yeah, let's keep this dialogue going. Send away Instagram, Facebook. I'm even trying to tweet these days, which is a hot sizzling mess. So we're working on that. (laughs) I'd like to give a Roots of the Spirit listener shout out to Yumi F. Yumi left a review on my Apple podcast platform. And she said, this podcast is the perfect little gem that I didn't know that I needed. Spirit is an excellent storyteller and speaker. She draws you in and places you right in the midst of her story. It's as if you're having a conversation with a great friend that you could listen to forever. I love the fact that she is not afraid to speak on race and racism and offers her guests an opportunity to tell all of their stories. I also appreciate her knowledge. This is not someone that is just talking just to talk. When she talks, she teaches. I look forward to listening to more episodes, but I would love to hear Spirit speak in a public setting. Oh my goodness, Yumi, that is such a beautiful, seriously moving review that you left. I can't thank you enough. That really moved me. I do speak publicly, so maybe I should be a little more promotional about my upcoming engagements when they do take place. So thanks again, Yumi. I really appreciate it. Again, if you'd be so kind, once you have an opportunity to listen to my podcast, please rate, review, and also share. Share with your family, share with your friends. Thank you so much. Since my last podcast episode, I watched When They See Us, directed by Ava DuVernay for Netflix, about the young Black and Latino teenagers coined the Central Park Five. Kevin Richardson, who was 14, Raymond Santana, 14, 
Antron McRae, 15, Yusuf Salam, 15, and 16-year-old Corey Wise, who were wrongfully convicted of assaulting and raping a white woman in Central Park in 1989. The teenagers between the ages of 14 and 16 were found guilty, spent between 6 to 13 years in prison, and later were exonerated after a serial rapist confessed to the crime. After watching When They See Us, my stomach was in knots, my tear ducts were stinging, and my heart was swollen. It's heart-wrenching to watch when they see us, but I personally believe that I owe it to the teenagers who are now men to know their story. Their story also reminds me of the mental health implications of racism. It's now a known fact that racism is a mental health crisis and it's making us sick. Hence why I created this podcast so we can together be a part of the solution in uprooting racism, advocating for mental health, and bringing our experiences to the surface so that we can actually unpack and digest what lives inside of us. I'm thrilled to share today's episode featuring our special guest, Melissa Lowry. Melissa is the Director of Diversity and Inclusion at Jesuit High School in Portland, Oregon. She is also a filmmaker who created a documentary called Black Girl in Suburbia, which our conversation will be centered on today. Melissa Lowry is a wife and mother to two daughters, Jayla and Shay. She graduated from Pacific University in 2009 with a BA in media with a minor in sociology. After graduation, she worked on several short independent film projects, commercials, and a web series around the Portland area. Black Girl in Suburbia is her very first feature documentary based off her own experiences growing up as one of the very few African Americans in a predominantly white suburb. The documentary looks into the experiences of black girls growing up in predominantly white communities. This is a different look into suburbia from the perspective of women of color. This film explores through professional and personal interviews the conflict and issues black girls have relating to both white and black communities. Black Girl in Suburbia intends to spark an open dialogue about race, identity, and perspective among all people in hopes that these discussions will allow us to look at perceptions of ourselves, others, and the community we live in as a whole. Melissa, thank you so much for joining me on the Roots of the Spirit podcast. It's an honor to have you on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. We first met through the organization Sojourn to the Past, which I've talked about so much on my previous podcast. But just in case I have a listener who this is their first podcast coming in, Sojourn to the Past is an interactive educational experience where young people travel the South and visit historic sites and monuments and meet and engage with veterans of the civil rights movement. And I had the golden opportunity to not only meet you, but also your daughter on the trip. Yes, Miss Jayla. One of our mutual friends told me while we were on Sojourn that you were a filmmaker and had made a film called Black Girl in Suburbia. And I was so super duper intrigued. I recently watched your film. I literally was so overwhelmed. And I wish that I had the opportunity to talk to you right away. But this is just as powerful. I'm so excited to talk about your film and the powerful work that you're doing. But first, I want to take it back and just build a foundation and work to the film. How did you first learn about Sojourn to the Past? And how did you end up going on the journey? So we have... um... John Matsuo is a vice principal at, at Hillsborough High School here in Oregon, and he had had mentioned Sojourn um, a couple times, and sometime last year, he said, you know, does your school want to go? We're really interested in going this year, and his very good friend is the founder of Sojourn, Jeff Steinberg, and Jeff had been wanting John to bring students from 
his school for years now. And so this year was was our year. So John's school and my school uh, were the first two Oregon schools to go on this sojourn trip. It was just, you know, it's one of those things that you cannot not go or participate when you hear about it. So I just, you know, I knew immediately that my school needed to be part of this and, and have and give our students the opportunity to have this experience. Can you tell me about your school? I, I work at Jesuit High School, which is a college prep Catholic private school here in Oregon. I am the director of diversity and inclusion, and I also teach a broadcasting class. So for me, bringing Sojourn to Jesuit, which is a Ignatius school, we are a big social justice school. Um, and so Sojourn is right up our alley. It, it goes with the things that with our mission and all of the things that we teach our students about being men and women for others. So it seemed like a perfect fit. What was it like for you going on Sojourn, especially with your daughter? So my daughter, I have two daughters. Um, Shay is a freshman at Jesuit. Jayla is a junior at Jesuit. For me, having her especially go on the strip was just really, it just kind of was a cherry on top. You know, one, I'm, you know, as her mother and her getting older and getting ready to graduate next year, it's like my time with her is so limited. It was such a blessing to be able to go on this really special trip with her and experience the things that we experienced really with like all of our students. I mean, we just, uh, you know, we, there was excitement at the very beginning. There was also sort of the kind of reality that our, this was not going to be a typical kind of school outing, um, especially when the kids found out that they weren't able to bring their phones or iPads or not being able to have any sort of like communication every day with their technology. Once that kind of sunk in, I think they all knew, especially that this was a very serious once in a lifetime trip. And so uh, once we, we started and met everybody in Atlanta and saw all the other schools and all the other students and teachers that were there, I mean, it just, it was powerful the minute that we got to the, the airport. And then having the opportunity to meet your amazing mother, Miss Minnie Jean Brown Tricky, was just unbelievable. And our kids are still talking and quoting her to this day. I don't think there's a week that goes by that one of us aren't quoting or saying something that Miss Minnie Jean had said which is great and a testimony to Sojourn. It was amazing. I think, again, there, I would say the first couple days of Sojourn were frustrating, I think, for a lot of us just because we were learning things and hearing stories that we had never heard about. And my students very much about why don't we know this and how come we're not taught these things and why don't we spend time on these things and why are they glossed over in our history book? Can you give an example, just paint a picture of one story or one concept or piece of history that the students were either surprised to learn or felt cheated that they hadn't learned it already? One, I think I could say, especially with the Little Rock Nine, I think our kids, they didn't know a lot about the individuals. That for them was sort of the meat of the, the history was the individual stories of each of the Little Rock Nine that they didn't know. I think connecting slavery to Jim Crow to mass incarceration, like, you know, see, actually seeing historical events being connected was something else. We That was something after we had gone to the uh, Brian Stevenson's Legacy Museum, that that's being able to see it all in one, you know, our history connecting oppression and not having that being 
taught in schools was something else. So it was just, it was a lot. It was just a lot of information, a lot of things that they had heard. That, and, you know, when they say we heard about this, they heard about it in their classroom, but they never said they were taught it. They were, they've heard about it, meaning that they just sort of read like three or four pages. They maybe did an assignment, answered some questions, and then, then kind of moved on. But being actually being taught it, actually learning and having it being something that they remembered or something that they connected to. But really, the personal stories on this trip was what was really, for me, especially the most important piece, because a lot of my work and the work that I do is dependent on personal stories and sharing stories and people's experiences. I'm kind of retaking the journey with you, and I just can't imagine how much more powerful it must have been to have Jayla on the trip with you and just seeing through her eyes as an educator, but also as a parent. I saw on social media that your students got together and were interviewed by a local news channel. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. There was an article in the paper. They immediately, when we got home, their teachers were asking them questions. Teachers were like, you know, asking them to share their stories and to come to their classroom and present, you know, give, you know, 10, 15 minute presentations. One of them turned into about an hour. They presented in front of our faculty, which there's about 130 faculty members. Um, and all of our kids, our group presented about an hour presentation with a Q&A, which was great because there's, you know, there's some kids in our group who are a little more introverted, who aren't really asking for the mic to speak up. But that's the other thing that I've noticed that's been great is those kids have been asking for the mic. They've been asking to answer a question or to share their own personal story. And that seeing that has been amazing that they're so confident in what they've learned from this trip that they cannot not say anything. I'm a huge proponent of connecting history to today. And it's amazing. You see young people just light up and come alive when they hear these yeah. stories and also see themselves reflected. That is one of the themes that continues to run through all of my guests on the podcast is representation and how it has impacted yeah. their lives. I would like to talk about your upbringing and give me a snapshot of where you grew up, your family, what your journey was through elementary, middle school, and high school, and then how you decided to get into the career path that you did. My family is originally from, my father's side is from actually Little Rock. That is a whole nother thing. So I'll digress just a little bit. But while we were in Little Rock, my I have three uncles that live there. And so they actually met myself and Jayla at the Central High Museum. We don't get to see them very often. You know, it's been years since, since I've seen them and my oldest uncle and my youngest uncle on my dad's side. So they, having the opportunity to, to get to see them and then having my oldest uncle share with me about our our own family history in Little Rock, that we were Masons and that we, you know, migrated from the Carolinas and we were one of the founding families of a, one of the oldest churches in Little Rock that was maybe five miles down the street from Central High School. So that uh, opportunity to not only hear about the history of the Little Rock Nine being in Little Rock, but then to also get some personal family history as well was huge. Such a big deal. And again, another great moment for myself and to share that with my daughter was a big deal. That's amazing because it feels like everything is so connected. 
like a big picture, but then also like from a personal standpoint. That was such a, a blessing to experience that and especially with Shayla. But yeah, so my, my family's from Little Rock. Um, they ended up migrating to Kansas City. My mother's family is from Texas, a little country town, Yoakum, Texas, and migrated to Portland during the northern migration of African Americans. And we actually ended up here. She actually, her mother ended up here in Portland. Who She had a brother that was here. And so that's kind of where my second or yeah, second generation Oregonian, my mother raised three children on her own in Westland, Oregon, which is a suburb of Portland, a middle to upper class community, predominantly white. And I tell people, you know, it, one of the things I fought a lot growing up there was when I lived in this was considered to be a very rich and wealthy community. And then two, being one of very few African-American kids. So I was fighting class and race being raised in Westland. But my family, you know, we always say we lived at the bottom of the hill. Rich families all lived at the top of the hill. And my little cul-de-sac, you know, were the working class families. And a lot of people forget that they're still working class families that live in these very prominent wealthy communities. So they're, you know, we were we were there, but we weren't, you know, living the, the, the rich life, so to speak. But my mom, you know, really struggled to keep a roof over our heads to keep us in what she thought was better schools, safer community. My brother is 10 years older than myself. So part of her moving us out to West Lynn from Portland, which was considered at the time inner city. I mean, it's still considered inner city. It's gentrified now, so it's a different story. But we lived in Portland, and back in the 80s, um, gangs were starting to become really prevalent, and it wasn't the safest place to be in at the time. And having my brother turning into a teenager at the time, for my mother's thinking, it was better for us to move away. So that's how we ended up in West Lynn. Again, my brother's 10 years older. I have a younger sister, Albany, who's four years younger than me. So there was the three of us, single parent, was raised in West Lynn from the time I was about three to four years old till I moved out when I was 18. So really my whole childhood, my whole life was there. And it was it was difficult. Luckily, though, my very first friend that I met when I moved to Westland was another little black girl named May. You know, the black families at that time would often kind of get together to celebrate birthdays or, you know, have summer barbecues or whatnot. And we went, particularly when we had, you know, moved out there and May and I met and it, we just kind of clicked and we were forever friends since that day. And luckily, she was sort of my go-to. We were each other's go-to throughout the 12 years that we were growing up in this place. You know, as we got older, we had different friend groups and hung out with different people and did our own thing. We were still connected by this experience of being Black girls in suburbia. Do you remember the very first time that you became aware of the color of your skin? So I talk about in the in my film that I was in third grade. Actually, my first grade. We had been living in Westland for a little bit. My kindergarten class was still in Portland. My mom still worked in Portland. And so I had was still going to, you know, I went to a preschool at a church where my, my auntie worked. And then after that, I went to kindergarten at Saban Elementary, which is in Portland, which up until that time was a very diverse group of kids. So it was, there was white kids, black kids, Mexican kids. 
Asian students, like there, we were all together. So it was not like, um, you know, there was not one person kind of standing out. I think my real first experience, and it wasn't talked about, like I, I didn't say anything, nobody said anything to me. But when I really realized how different I was, was first grade in Westland, walking into the classroom, and I was the only black kid in that class. And that's when I really was like, oh my God, I'm so different. So I would say that was my first kind of understanding. But at that time, I didn't have the language or the the understanding of what that was. I just knew that based off of all of the white kids in that class and just me, the black girl with the braids and the beads. And what did that moment feel like? It, I, I mean, I still remember it to this. It was just like, it's kind of shocking a little bit, right? And then so you're just kind of a, a sitting duck for a minute because you have to, you're, you have all these kids that's looking at you because they have, you know, I'm assuming they've never seen anybody that looked like me before. And I've seen kids that look like them, but not in a mass group. So I remember just being very kind of like a deer in headlights because I'm feeling their reaction towards me. I'm reacting myself. And luckily, and here's where, this is where great teachers come in, right? I had Mrs. Nickerson, she was my first grade teacher. I think she observed what was happening and kind of felt for me. And so she, I remember her kind of taking my hands and, you know, showing me around the class and showing me to my desk. And she said to me, you know, if you need anything, you just let me know you're not by yourself. And that to me was just like, oh my God, thank you. Like somebody has reached out, somebody has communicated to me that they are willing to be there for me. And I'm sure she knew what was going on, but sure, I'm sure she also did not have the vocabulary and did not have all of the language that we have now around race and identity politics or whatnot. But she recognized there was this little girl who obviously was different from everybody else and needed some attention. And that's what she did. She provided me the attention that I needed at that time, which was just a hand. I just needed a hand. I needed somebody to just say, I got you. And she did that. I always tell that story when teachers are always like, well, what do I do? I'm, you know, I'm, I'm this and I'm just, you know, I'm an old white guy and I don't know that experience and I don't know. And it's like, well, at some point it's not about that. It's just connecting with another human. And, and acknowledging what the other person needs at that time and just giving them that. I get asked similar questions by teachers when I'm invited to speak in their classroom, but I also get asked that by parents. I like the way you frame that by bringing in the human element and simplifying it. Just basically asking, how would you want to be treated and what would you need in that moment? It seems so simple, but there's definitely a missing link. We, we make things more difficult than they need to be. And we always, we take out the more humanistic pieces of connection. It's just about the connection piece of it. When I got to third grade and this other incident happened that was more overt, which was my third grade teacher lining us all up for a drink of water. And each of us would step up and get a drink and go back to our desk. And it was my turn. I stepped up, I got a drink. And then I heard her asking the little boy behind me, okay, it's your turn. Go ahead. Do you want a drink? And he said, no. And she said, you know, are you sure? And he said he didn't want the color of my skin to rub off on him if he took a drink because he thought that would happen. So her response was nothing except, okay, we'll just go sit down. And again, we were not having the same conversations that we're having nowadays because now we have more information. We have, there's, again, there's language, there's terminology, which we did not have that back then. So I'm thinking, and I think about her, what position she was in and what she was thinking as that was happening, knowing that it was wrong, but not knowing how to handle it, which again is another question that a lot of teachers nowadays still ask. I'll speak personally as a person of color, things from the first, second, third grade are seared into me, but I don't know if the teacher's 
who witnessed this, my classmates, how did that impact them? Or did it? Did it just fly over them? Right. Yeah. I I liked my third grade teacher. I didn't like her as much as Mrs. Nickerson, but but I do. I wonder like what was going through her head at the time. Like what was she uncomfortable? Was she wanting to try to say something to him that like to educate him or or even what would she want to say to me? Knowing that I overheard, I heard she saw that I had heard what he said, and she said nothing to me. So like, what was going through her head at the time, or was it just not that? Was it something that was just like, oh, he's being silly or, you know, he doesn't know what he's talking about and it's not that important and go sit down. This awareness is from such a very young age. It is quite possible that somebody might think, oh, they're just a kid. They probably didn't understand what happened, but they do. Exactly. Exactly. And it's a feeling too that overcomes you of your face getting hot or you being embarrassed or shame, or you might not even have the vocabulary as you were saying, but it is definitely in the air and it is felt deeply. Exactly. After elementary school, can you describe the rest of your educational experience and what led you to the career path you're currently in? I graduated from Westland High School and I went to Portland Community College for about a year and I was not the best student, but I promised my mom I would I would go to school, even though the rule in the house after I graduated was get a job or you go to school. And I was like, well, of course I don't want to work. I'm going to go to school. I'm going to keep trying. So I did PCC for about a year. Um, that did not work out. I said I will get back into school another time. And about 10 or 12 years later, possibly more, I did end up going back to school. But um, in between them, it was graduating, working, moving to Southern California, getting married and and having two babies, and then moving back to Portland um, after being away for about 10 years and moving back to Portland uh, for my husband's work, which was great. Some of my family were still here in Portland. My husband's family is from Portland. So it was nice to have grandparents and cousins and, you know, our, our girls to be able to hang out with family on a regular basis. And my husband was working at Pacific University at the time, and I had the opportunity to get my degree through um, tuition remission, which was great. So that was my opportunity of going back to school, which I had promised my mother I would always go back to school. And I did, but I was doing it in the non-traditional way. I had two kids and married and the house and all of that. And it was difficult, you know, having my babies with me as I'm going from class to class and also working part-time and trying to be the, you know, responsible adult and mother and wife and all of that. But eventually I graduated with a degree in media. I was really focused on documentary and I also minored in sociology. So all of those things kind of led up to where I'm at right now. Let's talk about your film, Black Girl in Suburbia. How was the idea born? Shortly after I graduated, Jayla had come home and said that a girl had talked about her hair. That was really the spark of my film, Black Girl in Suburbia, us having this conversation about being the only one. Because for her, that was the first moment she realized she was different, was this girl talking about how her hair was different from everybody else's. And that's when Jayla realized that she was not like everybody else. And we have this whole conversation about, you know, we live in a place where, you know, you may be the only one and daddy may be the only one, you know, at his work and mommy may be the only one at the gas station. You know, that's our reality. That's just the demographics of where we live and it doesn't take anything away from who you are and did Jayla have questions after that conversation? She did. 
she had a she had a lot of questions. She, I mean, she was really just like, why just because my hair is different from everybody else's should that be? Why does that matter? That was what she was really asking about. Why does it even matter what my hair looks like? Why does it even matter what color I am? And I just, you know, and I was explaining to her because we have a we have a large family, and even though the demographics of Oregon, the black population here is so low. I think right now when I made the film, I think it was 2%. And now I think it might be like maybe 3.5. I'm not going to hold myself to that. But just based off of where we live, there's not going to be a lot of us in one place. And I wanted her to be clear about that. But I also wanted her to be clear that, again, that takes nothing away from who you are as a young girl, as a black person, as, you know, whatever the case is. Like you come from a very proud black family. And my both of my girls have known that. But I also know how difficult it is when you get reaffirmed in your identity at home and behind closed doors. And then when you leave those doors, all of that kind of fades away because there's nobody there reaffirming who you are. There's been conversations around like the talk, right? I think I've been explaining to people that the talk isn't just this one time where you just sit down, you have a talk and then it's over. It's a compilation of many talks, right? Over years of your childhood. And that's kind of how we like raised our girls that we had these talks and the talk wasn't just about driving, but it was about who you are as a person. And again, reaffirming your, your identity as a black person and but how what that comes with as you leave the house. It's almost like the perfect storm. You have the educational background in media and sociology, and then you have a very personal experience that arises in your own family. Now you have the spark. Then what happened next? So we have this talk and then it brought up so many of my own emotions that I didn't know still existed. I repressed a lot of my own emotions and acknowledgement of anger. Like I was angry. Like it made me angry, like thinking about my own experiences and, and what I know now, I think that came up and I really had to have a moment just like, oh my God, like it was bringing up so much that I just was not prepared for of in myself, not my daughter, but just in myself. I hadn't thought about this in a really long time and I just learned how to create a film and share a story or tell a story through film. And I think I'm going to make a film about this. So I reached out to my mentor and, you know, she's telling me you just graduated. So just chill out for a little bit. But I, there was just like the fire that had been lit was just really like not going away. And so and I didn't know how I was going to make a film, but I just knew that this film had to like get done. And so then I, and I Googled if this story had been shared before. I had come up with Black Girl in Suburbia and that just like kind of came about because I thought, well, what would it, the name of whatever I'm creating, what would the name of it be? And I just thought, well, I'm a Black Girl in Suburbia and it just popped up and I was like, ah, oh, perfect. So I put that in to Google and nothing came up. And then I put in like Black Girl Experience in White Communities. I think one book popped up and I cannot remember the name of the book at the time, but it was a black author who talked a little bit about like her family being the only black family in her community and what that looks like. But aside from that, there was like nothing. Part of me was shocked and part of me wasn't. But I thought, okay, this is more motivation for me to do this. You had no equipment, no funding? Nothing, nothing. I had nothing. I, I had no, I had no money. This is my first film. All I knew was I knew I had resources and I had 
the information and I had the idea mm-hmm. and that's what I had. And I had a mentor and I had people to back me. That was the big thing, even though at the beginning they had no idea what I was talking about, but, but I had people that were going to support me. I had resources and that's basically where everything kind of came from. My mom has always been big on us using our resources. She would always say like, you know, if somebody says, you know, Hey, if you ever need some help with this or that, or if you ever need blah, 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 you know, give me a call and you say to them, okay, well, if I call you, just remember, you just said you were going to help me out. I started with getting some of the folks that I had gone to school with. And mind you, again, I'm 20 years older than many of these students who I'd gone to school with, but they were great people, super creative, amazing folks. I reached out to a couple of them and was, you know, asked if, uh, you know, they'd be willing to work on this project with me and help me shoot it and help me find people and, you know, all of that stuff. And one of the guys that I went to school with, who was, he also was a little bit older, an older student. And he was like, you know, what about Kickstarter? And, and this is when Kickstarter had just come out. And I was like, I had no idea what it was, but he, you know, shared with me that it was like a crowdfunding online resource. And I was like, oh, okay and he told me what you need to do we need to make a video we need to set a goal and and I said goal like what you know a couple thousand dollars like that'll at least get us a camera maybe and a bag of chips for everybody to share or whatever <laughs> um he said well no well what why don't we just go big like either we go big and we don't get it but we can always try again so we might as well put some random number up there so we did I think we put like 10,758 and like 45 cents something like that <laughs> just super random because I thought oh there's in a way, like, you know, whatever, but at least we tried and we'll try again. But within the first two days, we had raised $2,000. Nice. Yeah, that just really, like, made it realistic. Like, oh, crap, like somebody I don't even know has donated this money. One person had actually donated $1,000. And I thought, holy crap, and I didn't know this person. And I remember emailing them directly and just saying thank you so much and asking them why, you know, why would you spend that much money on a project and a person you don't even know. And this was a a woman who was local. She was director of um, equity and inclusion at a university. And she just said, this is a story that I know is real. And and I feel like it really needs to be shared. And I don't have a thousand dollars to just give, but I believe in it and it needs to be heard. Like these voices need to be heard. That just was like, oh, okay. I really got to get this done. So within the month or so, we raised the money. We actually went a little bit over our goal and it was like, all right, let's get to work. So we got a crew together. And again, I, I emailed everybody in my email box, people that maybe I've emailed once or never, but they got an email from me just basically saying, hey, here's a project that we're doing. Please support if you can, and then please pass on to 10 more people. And that's really how I got the support was basically through asking people to tell 10 other people. So at this point, you've built the network work and now have some funding. Yeah. Once we got like, you know, some equipment, I bought a computer. I didn't even have a computer or editing. So I had to get all of that. And I actually got to pay some of my crew and it was great. So we, we shot within a summer, I would say. And then about really over a year, we shot everything and got our interviews. And again, I was looking for black teachers to interview and couldn't find any, like all the teachers I would talk to, they would say, oh yeah, there's so-and-so waiter and administrator or or the superintendent or whatever, but nobody that was actually in the classroom. And so that was really difficult. And then part of as this project was coming together, it was just kind of like 
God was kind of on my side and really just putting people in, in my life as needed at the perfect time. And so I remember doing a radio interview and there were three black female hosts and we were talking and one of the hosts said, oh yeah, well, you know, my class, blah, blah, blah. And I said, your class? And she said, yeah, I'm a teacher. And I said, what? <laughs> so I was like, well, you need to be in my movie. So that's how I got her. And then another one, I, w- I was picking my girls up from school one day and Jayla got in and she said, oh, mommy, I had my first black teacher. And I said, what? <laughs> she said, yeah. And I said, are you sure she's not, she's not Latino? She was like, no, she's black. And I was like, so I jumped out of the car oh, and I ran through the school and I found her. And I was like, I was like, oh my God, oh my God. I said, you have to be in my movie. And she was like, what? <laughs> and uh, so we talked and she was like, you know, she just happened to be a black girl in suburbia herself. So I was like, oh, this is perfect. So it was like, just all of the interviews, all of the people, it was just, was, everything was just coming together. It was like, I need this, but I have no idea how I'm going to find it. But then all of a sudden there would be somebody or there would be somebody that would know somebody immediately. Um, and that's really how the project came together. Because like I said, I had no idea how this thing was. I, it still surprises me that it came together the way that it did. But it just, that's just how it, it worked. That's just how it all just sort of, and the people that were part of this project, it, we were all sort of like just kind of there. I truly think it's a testament to the power of the message of your film. It's like a universal pull, like this is really important and the resources are just going to come to you. It's like the energy you put out is coming back to you. What was your experience interviewing the young Black girls in high school, as well as the respective adults? Part of what I wanted to see, again, is I wanted to see if anything had changed within the last 20 years of since I was in school. I have women my age, you know, who I interview, and then it was like, okay, well, let's go back. Let's see if anything has changed for this younger generation. So again, called out to all of my educators and said, hey, I'm looking for young Black women to interview high school age. And so the group of girls that are from Eugene, Oregon, are from a school that has a, at the time, they had what they call the multicultural liaison. Mm -hmm. And so I I got in touch with her. She said, oh my God, yes, please come down. We have about 10 girls that you could totally talk to and they're excited about it. So that's, you know, where I found that group. And then again, just put out a call in Portland and just said to any teachers, parents, whatever, you know, if your girls want to tell their story, you know, this is where we're meeting, whatever. And that's how I got my Portland girls. Many of these girls, the Portland girls, especially, they, none of them knew each other. And my goal in these group interviews was just really to have them have their own conversation. Like, you know, I would throw out a couple of questions and then they would just go off and just start talking. And it was great because, you know, you could see them like, oh my God, like you too. Oh, that happens to you. Like they had never talked about their experience before. They had never, nobody had ever asked. Nobody knew, right? You can totally see this sacred conversation blossoming in real time. So that was, I mean, that was really powerful. And just for them to see that it's not just them. Like they're, even if it's just them at their school that this is happening, that other girls are having these same experiences in different places. The experience itself is real. A lot of times you feel crazy because you think, you know, nobody else is seeing it or nobody else is acknowledging it, but you see it and you're like, oh my God, what's happening? When you reflect through the film, how much has changed and how much has remained the same? What are your thoughts between your experience and the girls of today? 
I found that our experiences mirrored each other. I mean, not a lot has changed. I mean, everything that I went through, everything that I felt, we talked about hair, we talked about dating, we talked about um, being the only one in the classroom and the inward. I mean, those exact same experiences these girls were still were talking about. We'll now hear a snippet from the film of the girls all together talking about their experiences of being Black girls in suburbia. One thing that annoys me is like everyone just assumes that I know how to dance. Or they're like, oh, Maria shows the stanky leg and all that stuff. I'm like, I can't dance, guys. I can't. And I don't know if it's because like I used to be able to just to dance freely or whatever but I don't know if I got so self-conscious that everyone expected me to know how to dance that I was like I just don't want to dance anymore so I basically stopped dancing like three years ago ghetto run <laughs> fight dance like you'll have kool-aid uh, or you'll have a purple drink and it'll be like gatorade and they'll be like what are you drinking grape kool-aid yeah. or they'll just like refer drink. and then they'll like say what do you do you like chicken and waffles or just like they'll refer <laughs> to all the foods that black people like to eat or like soul food or just, like soul food and stuff I chose not to do certain things that were like associated with black people and like I honestly don't really drink Kool-Aid because it's a stereotype and I would hate for people to be like oh what do you want to drink Kool-Aid or something like that you know I just I leave the stereotypes alone like it's affected me on like in my personal interest even yeah because I don't want to be stereotypical oh I used to be scared of black people until I met you Labrio don't mess with her she's black she will beat you up they're like you're the best black person I know I'm like I'm the only black (laughs) (laughs) so I play basketball and like sports and it just seems like everybody expects you to do like really good and like if you're not doing everything they're like oh well, you're supposed to be doing We are the stereotypes, not to say all all of the stereotypes, but if you think about it, a lot of stereotypes are actually true because that is just our people, that's our, our culture. And, I mean, it, you can either look at the stereotypes negatively or positively, so. I mean, we are who we are. We don't change ourselves for other people just because of the stereotypes. Like, oh yeah, so you see a black person and they're like, oh look, is that your cousin? You're like, no, I, don't, I haven't seen that person in my life. Oh, I, you're not black. You're like one of us. Say, I act more black than you. You don't even act that black. You don't talk black. Like, I'm more black than you. I'm like, what does it mean? Like, because my skin color is this, I should be a certain way, like you were saying. I need to, like, be stereotypical. Around most white people, I'm not even saying all white people, but you put on your representative, which is... It's not your fake person, but it's your good person. You you don't want to be like that token black person, the one that's like, oh yeah, that's right, that's that's all black people right there in you. Yeah. That must have been a really powerful experience. Unfortunately, not a lot has changed. I mean, right now what I see, and especially with like, with my daughter, um, both of my daughters, is that they have a vocabulary that I didn't have at the time when I was their age. They have tools that I didn't have at the time when I was their age. So even though they are still having these experiences, they are much more knowledgeable than I was and they have more confidence. And this is not to say every every black girl in suburbia or every child of color has this. And this is part of where resources are, why we just need to do better in our educational system. But 
for my girls, they have these tools, they have the resources, they have more confidence in being able to speak up and say something. In your experience, how does that foundation carry with them from home into school and their everyday lives? I saw it on Sojourn too, right? Like there, these kids are powerful. These kids were saying some things that like I could have never said when I was their age or didn't even know. Like I thought, I, you know, back in when I was their age, the biggest thing that was happening at the time was apartheid. The politics in South Africa was going on. And I thought I was being part of the movement by wearing my little Mandela t-shirt and my African medalla and like going to a couple rallies here and there. I thought I was doing something but these kids these days, and again, even just the, the kids on the sojourn trip, I mean, again, they have access to tools and vocabulary. And what, I, what I've noticed is they do have that. And those kids who choose to dive into that, dive into wanting to know more, wanting to learn about more about racism and learn more about the, the different types of oppression that we suffer from in this world, wanting to know about those things, wanting to know about our history, those are the kids that I think are, are even, even though some of those kids are having experiences similar to the experiences that I had as a young person, the difference is that they're more, they know, they know more, I guess. They know how to push past it. They know how to stand up and say, and to be able to say to their very good friends, like, hey, you know, that comment was offensive or that comment was not appropriate or that's not cool. And being able to just say that where that was, that's not something that I would have been able to say to my friends. Throughout your film, the girls talk about their respective experiences dealing with racism and daily microaggressions. One of the things that really hit me was when one of the girls said she could not wait to get out of Oregon after she graduated high school. When we shot that, her mom was actually there when we shot that segment. And afterwards, her mom was just in tears. And she came up to me and was just like, I had no idea. Like, she never, this is the first time I'm hearing any of this. I had no idea. She said, I, I thought I was doing right for my family by moving to where we moved to. Again, better schools, safer communities, just giving my kids an opportunity, a better opportunity to be successful. And that, you know, you can't fault her for being, I mean, when you're in parent mode, that's how, that's your thinking. I think when I get asked the question, well, why don't you guys just move? Or why did you guys move to where you moved to? I'm always like, well, you know, again, when when we moved back to Portland and moved to this specific city or um, suburb that we moved to, my experience was not involved in, I had not thought about my own experience when we were thinking about where we were going to move back to when we moved to Portland. Even though where we live, there's a large Latino population where we are. But that was not something, I mean, we were just thinking about logistics of being close to work and between work and family. Like that's where we were, our heads were. So when people are like, well, you, why don't you guys just move? And it's like, well, moving could help, that could work. But then how are we like teaching our children to navigate these situations? Because really, like my mom had said to me when we were talking, when I was telling her about my film in the beginning, she said, well, really, wherever we lived in Oregon, you were going to have some sort of this experience. It, it wasn't going to matter if we stayed in Portland or if we did whatever, because then you were going to get a job or you were going to, you know, do a summer camp or you were going to be the only one or you were going to, you know, at some point you were going to have these experiences. And so with that, my, my, my response is always, well, you know, yes, we could move to a more uh, multiracial neighborhood or, but, you know, but where would that be if we're staying in Oregon, if we have to stay in Oregon, where would that be? You shouldn't have to. It's so disturbing that people of color have to really contemplate 
and dig deep and make very calculated and strategic decisions trying to create a home. I should be able to live here in comfort and not have to worry right. about all of these pressures from the outside inflicted with racism. And my thing is, is too, like, what messages that send your, your children when you, the message that my husband and I are intentional about with our kids is that regardless of where you live, you have to be comfortable in your skin. You be comfortable with who you are being a human being first, right? Like you be the best jailer you can be, you be the best shade you can be, and then you can add on everything else to that. But as long as you are being the, the best human person that you can be, then everything else will, will, will fall into place. So then you can add on being, you know, who you are as a black person, who you are as a, a woman, like, but if you can accept, if you are comfortable in your own skin, you can live anywhere, right? You, you'll still have these experiences, but you'll have a better idea of how to navigate them if you are comfortable with yourself and you are, you are self-aware and you are, have a really good understanding of who you are. And, and that's important for us to instill at least in my students and in my own kids, like know who you are just being a human and everything else will come into place regardless of where you live. Because if you are okay with who you are, you can really live anywhere and be and connect with all different types of people while still having these experiences. I'm curious through the duration of making your film, did you see any transformation with your daughter and also within yourself? That is a great question. I I think for me, this whole, and so this film really took, it took me five years to complete it. And so within within that five year uh, time period, I mean, there was just a lot happening just with me personally. Like I just had this love hate relationship with this film, and again, like I said, even from the beginning, from the spark, it brought up all of these feelings that I didn't know that I still had, and things that I needed to like, you know, really come to terms with and and uh, and deal with because I was seeing these things happening with my own kids, and so it was like I needed to really take a look at like what I hadn't dealt with yet and how I'm going to deal with that. And, you know, a lot of students of color at predominantly white schools will often say, I'm never coming back. And I was one of those people. Like, I'm never coming back to Westland. I'm never going back there ever, ever, ever. And I didn't want to feel that way, right? Like, I didn't want to feel any uh, resentment towards the place that I grew up in, even though I knew there was a lot of work to be done in this community. But I think for me, it was just a lot of, of growth in my own understanding of what I went through. And then seeing my daughters kind of go through it. There's scenes, you know, where I'm braiding Jayla's hair in the film. Mm-hmm. And what's not shown in there, as we were braiding, I talked to Jayla actually about like, my story of, of this little boy not taking a drink out of the water fountain. And I said to Jayla, what would you do? What would you, you know, what would you do if, if that happened to you? And like, and, you know, can you believe that that happened? And Jayla was just like, I can't even believe that mommy. Like, that's just crazy. And she said, you know what? And so what if his, if his skin turned brown? Like, what's the big deal? That's what I'm talking about, girl. Like, <laughs> That's great. She was like, she was like, what's the big deal? Like, he'd still be the same person. His skin would just be brown. Like, I don't even understand what the big, but that's her, right? That's always kind of been her. This sort of like, why does that even matter? And that's always just been who she is. And again, so within these five years now, it's it's been almost 10 years since I started the film. My girls have been with me in this process. And so that's part of where I feel confident in really letting them go because they've been part of these conversations. They've been, they have been witness to other stories and people and experiences. So even though they are still having their own experiences with racism and sexism and all of these things, they know, like they're, 
because each each time they have an experience, each time that they get to speak up and say something or each time that they don't say something is adding to who they are. Like I know that they're going to be fine as long, again as long as they know who they are and they're teenagers but they're and they're still learning and but I see them growing into these amazing young people. It makes me worry less about the future because I know what they know and I know what they've seen and I know what, what they are experiencing and I know how smart they are. Melissa, I really thank you for your hard work and perseverance to bring such an important story to life through film. I know these experiences are vastly universal in Black girls in suburbia, but also in cities have felt the sting of being discriminated against, stereotyped, felt isolated, ostracized, and have had to and also have to in current day, navigate so much just to live in this world. Your film gives me hope because you've created a platform to spark conversations and amplify the girls' voices. I'm also very thankful to them for being courageous and sharing their own stories. There's so much power in that. How can our Roots of the Spirit community get in touch with you and also gain access to the film Black Girl in Suburbia? Right now, you can keep up with what's going on with Black Girl in Suburbia at blackgirlinsuburbia.com. We are on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And you can find out if uh, a showing or screening is going to be seen somewhere near you. Also with Women Make Movies Distribution Company. And so you can also go to them as well. Again, it's womenmakemovies.com. You can purchase the film there as well. So there's a couple opportunities to get to see the film. And you can also email myself, Melissa Lowry, at dgsuburbia at gmail.com if you are interested in hosting a screening as well. That's wonderful. Thank you so much, Melissa. This has been incredibly fruitful and I'm very thankful. Thank you. 